0: Socio political issues, one man searches for intelligent conversation from Dedham, Massachusetts, the birthplace of modern democracy. This is You Don't Have to Yell with your host, Dan Sally. Welcome to Your Home for the Politically Homeless, the podcast for those of you who like your politics in colors other than red and blue. If you are new here, welcome. And if you like what you hear today, Please share this with one friend you think might like it too. Now, when we discuss conservatism on this podcast and in general, it's often couched in terms of Trump, given what I will label the audacity of MAGA. That being said, many of us, myself included, forget that a large number of Republicans didn't want Trump on the ballot and feel he's more of a hindrance to the party than a help. And a longtime listener and friend of the show, Tarleton, Turn me on to Saving Elephants, a podcast and blog that seeks to redefine the conservative movement for millennials, a generation of Republicans who are more skeptical of Trump and the MAGA movement overall. And I invited the host and founder, Josh Lewis, on to discuss his blog and his efforts to redefine conservatism. And I ended up going totally off course and diving into a bunch of subjects I didn't prepare him to discuss. That being said, He was a great sport. He was very knowledgeable, and it made for some very interesting conversation. I will be back at the end with my final thoughts. The first thing I want to get on the record while we're recording, too, is that you are an Oklahoma Republican, right? Yes. Yes. Red State, Oklahoma. And I mentioned this before we recorded. I'm a former Massachusetts Republican, right? But Massachusetts Republicanism is a club sport. It's sort of like, let's say, Harvard's football team to Oklahoma State, right? Where (laughs) it's the same sport, yeah, but not quite the same. So before we get into any philosophical conversations, though, I'd really love for you to talk about Saving Elephants what it's about and what prompted you to to start the podcast and the blog yeah absolutely
1: great to be on the podcast i appreciate you reaching out to me it sounds like we have several differences but also some similar concerns about the direction of the com- of the country and so that's yeah that's something i'm always happy to speak with someone else who is willing to think deeply about the mess we seem to find ourselves in mm-hmm. and that isn't a lot of ways my motivation for saving elephants it started shortly after the 2016 election not entirely but chiefly because of the effects of Donald Trump and sort of my genuine surprise with the speed with which the party moved in a Trumpian direction, not only in the run-up to that election, but as you might recall, you know, as Trump was gaining the nomination, that was when you would have individuals such as Lindsey Graham and Ted Cruz that were still very willing to stand up against the guy, and just within a year or two, that that almost completely dissolved, and Saving Elephants, I guess, in a certain sense, before there was even a name for it, really started as a series of Facebook posts I would make in interactions with friends and relatives. For the most part, friendly, but also it was very evident we did not see eye to eye on this. And so it occurred to me, well, if they say they're conservative and I say I'm conservative, and we're clearly not agreeing on this, then what do I mean when I say I'm conservative? And I called myself a conservative my whole life, but I never actually rigorously studied what does this word mean. And I did that. I, I went back and, and read mostly old, dead white guys' writings mm-hmm. right from from years, if not centuries ago. And the more I dug into this, the more I realized, why was I never told this before? This stuff is really cool. We're having these mind-numbing, ridiculous debates about things that don't, in, in some cases, even matter. And there were these individuals who had these most brilliant observations about human nature. And about our limitations and, and what is the ideal regime to live within, within those limitations. And, and I think in, in, in a sense, it was kind of the combination of those factors that led me to found Saving Elephants, which as the name implies is I am a Republican. I am still a Republican. I'm an odd Republican because I don't always vote for Republicans or support the direction of my party. Mm-hmm. But I think that conservatism holds a lot of the answers that we need today. But what we call conservatism is not necessarily the sort of conservatism I'm talking about.
0: I'm interested in diving into that. But before we get into that, though, one question you you mentioned. So you mentioned there were friends, colleagues and so on of yours who you disagreed with, who I presume were conservative. What were you disagreeing about? Well, at at first, it was
1: simply the election of Donald Trump. When I even to this day can respect somebody said, look, Donald Trump is an imperfect candidate. But yeah, there's a big difference between someone who votes for a Donald Trump when he's running against Hillary Clinton. Right. And, and saying something like, look, this guy's going to appoint the sort of Supreme Court justices we want. And that's more important to me than all these other things. There's a big difference between that and those who were supportive of Trump when it was an open question whether or not it was him or the other literally 19 candidates mm-hmm. <laughs> on that stage running for the Republican nomination. And so it was those individuals that for whatever reason, there was something about this guy that I mean, I I'll give him this. He was the most unique of all 20 of them. Right. He was the one that stood out and like, OK, it's this guy versus all the others it was those individuals that just gravitated toward him and somehow would say things like, well, he, you know, he's not a politician. He he really gets us, or he's going to make America great again. And it was that sort of pushing back against, well, wh- what does that even mean to make America great again? When was it great? What would it take to make it great? And, and trying to understand why, it, I wouldn't even call them arguments, to be fair, because they weren't really saying, here's the period in which it was great, and here's exactly what it needs to do. It was almost like they had this sort of natural inclination to follow the sort of person who was saying the sort of things he was. Mm -hmm. And I was trying to understand what is it about this guy that has got them so enamored?
0: Do you know, it's funny. So a guest I had on the show twice who was born and raised in France, moved here when he was 13 and became a rabid, rabid Trump fan. Oh, wow. And I mean, again, we're in the Northeast. He's French. So right off the bat, you've got him typecast as, as far left as it goes. (laughs) This guy was most, I think he was the most MAGA guy I've ever had on this show. And he kind of had the same sort of comment where he was in New Hampshire. So, you know, all the candidates come through New Hampshire and he got to see Trump a couple of times. And he just said, Trump had this energy about him. And then when he saw him in the debates, he just started to think, you know what, this guy's got it. And Trump just had a way of hot wiring certain people. Mm -hmm. Um, And then there were the other conservatives I knew who were more like he was my last choice, but it was him or Hillary. So that was it. So after doing all this research, what conclusions did you come to about conservatism? Like, what is it exactly? Well, that's probably the biggest conclusion is
1: that, you you know how as you get older and you learn more about a topic, you realize... Mm -hmm how ignorant you always were, and how much little you actually know about that topic. I I think that's my, honestly, number one biggest takeaway is how hard it is to grapple with what is actual conservatism. And that doesn't mean I can't give responses, but it's something that brilliant minds have debated back and forth, little nuanced differences between them. And there's a number of ways to tackle it. I often quote Sir Roger Scruton, a conservative philosopher, and, and I say I quote him. I'm going to butcher this, but I'll, I'll, words to this effect. He essentially said that conservatism begins with an attitude that all reasonable people share. So he's he's saying you know people on the left and right, anybody reasonable would share at least the attitude conservatism begins with. And it's simply this: the good things we have in life are not easily created, but they are easily destroyed. And so, therefore, our proper orientation towards these things we value is to conserve them. And this is something that I think Russell Kirk is also getting at in his, uh, his short essay, Ten Conservative Principles, in which he straight up says, look, conservatism is not an ideology. It's not a strict list of these are the principles we all abide by. It begins with an attitude, an attitude of conservation and gratitude. It, it's more than that. It has to be more than that because you can't build a political system off of just gratitude. But unlike, say, liberalism or libertarianism or socialism, It doesn't have a prescription for all people at all times. What it says instead is, for this people, the United States, in this time, here's our proper orientation. And so oftentimes what an American conservatism is trying to do is to restore the founding vision and to try to live Mm. up to the founding principles. That is the thing we're most grateful for, say, from a political perspective. Now, obviously, you can talk about social conservatism and the family and the church and, and so on and so forth. But I, I guess I say it that way. And this, is, incidentally, there are conservatives who deeply disagree with this. Say, know there has to be fundamental founding principles. But I am not trying to restore the Ottoman Empire, right? I might have opinions about those things. But what I'm trying to live up to is a very specific time and place conservatism from which I can then build larger political principles
0: out of. Mm. So let's take kind of the modern era then. And so the listener can get their head around this. Is there a specific issue today or maybe a specific issue from the past you can point to with a clear conservative position that'll help illustrate exactly what that means?
1: Yeah. And and I think the first thing that comes to mind, because usually when you get individuals labeled liberal or conservative or progressive and conservative down to argue things, we'll talk about the tax rate or gun debate or um, abortion or things of those natures. And and those are all important issues. But I, I think If we lived in the South circa 1850, and and we were trying to uphold a, say, sort of liberty slash human rights mindset, Mm -hmm. there's a lot of things we could debate. But if we're going to ignore the slavery issue, we're ignoring the elephant in the room, right? And, Mm -hmm. And I think in a sense, there are a lot of policies we can debate and should debate. But I think the moment we live in calls for more of a conservative orientation towards things, which is slow, deliberative change over time, trust in Mm -hmm. the system, respect the process of the system. If you don't like a role, that's fine. We can change it, but don't blow the system apart trying to do it. And a consistent de-escalation of the sort of uh, reactionary owning the other side and Mm whataboutism. Now, to be careful there, because I think there are certain never-Trumpers, there are certain, say, Lincoln project crowds that elevate that as if it's such a central principle that it's almost like, well, once we get there, then it almost doesn't matter if the left wins or it doesn't, we're not trying to advance any conservative principles. So I'm not, I'm not advocating that that is the only principle I'm saying that until we get that worked out, it's really hard for me to see my way to saying, here's how we need to argue what the tax rate needs to be.
0: Sure, 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 sure. Yeah. The, 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 the analogy I use is if you, is if you're in a room, you need to change the light bulb and the stool's broken. What do you do first? Yeah. And you fix the stool and the stool's broken. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the stool is 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 definitely it's at least wobbly. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, I would say yeah, there's there it's not it's not 100% stable. Do you I, I'm curious jumping back to your research, what were maybe one or some of the things that surprised you the most?
1: Well, I, I kind of mentioned a couple of them, one being just how complex it is, one being how hard it is to define, one being how beautiful some of these arguments are and how we don't talk about them often. Cool. Honestly, another was how much people that call themselves conservatives, and probably rightly, we would define them as say, I'll talk about intellectual conservatives. How much they fought yeah. each other, and sometimes they were friends, sometimes they were on friendly terms, and other times they just couldn't speak with each other. But man, these debates matter to them. I mean, they really wrestled with things, and and I think that is important. Just speaking as a conservative, because there's a tendency within the right today, I think, to say, you know, that Reagan era was great and all, but it it's not working, and so let's just scrap fusionism, let's just scrap all these ideas of the past of the free market and kind of go a different direction. And I, I think there's a certain necessary maturity that looks at that and says, wait a minute, there were brilliant thinkers that fought through these debates endlessly to get us to where we are today. And, and maybe we could scrap it. Maybe it's of no use to us today, but it would behoove us to at least understand those things. Yeah. And so I, I don't know if I'm getting at the nature of your question, but I guess that was one thing that really struck me. It was oftentimes when we
0: fight today. Yeah. There were better versions of those same debates generations ago. I, I remember it's on on YouTube. You can find it. There's a debate between William F. Buckley and Noam Chomsky. Yes. Who by are further apart politically than any two members of Congress today. Yet, yet the way they debated, and they were debating about the Vietnam War during the Vietnam War. So this was one of the hottest, most contentious issues at the time. They were able to have a very measured... Thoughtful discussion. They didn't agree, mm-hmm. but it was truly a very, a very high-minded conversation. There's another thing too I want to get back to, which is you talk about slow incremental change. And I think one of the things that makes me more conservative is my belief and my respect for federalism mm. and for distributed power at the most local level. And part of the reason for that is that I think the area where I really disagree with a lot of liberals is the idea that you need broad sweeping federal legislation to get anything done. And uh, I I think the reality is that slow incremental change that takes place at the local level ultimately can get buy-in if you let it. I'm curious as to your thoughts on that and whether federalism kind of ties into your broader philosophy.
1: Yeah, and I'm blanking on who, it was, it was either Alan Bloom or, I can't remember, it, it, was a, it was a neoconservative godfather, and I cannot remember off the top of my head who it was, but they basically said something to the, to the effect that conservatives have from birth what liberals seem to lack from life, which is an undying suspicion of a central authority's ability to do good. Mm-hmm. And, and I And I do wonder sometimes how much of this comes down to just innate personality differences. Like, it... It just it's it's as if it would never occur to some people that well, if we give all this power to central authority, that could be misused in some way. And I am a huge advocate of federalism. I i think one of one of the projects, say, of modern conservatism is try to understand why federalism isn't working, by which I don't mean that federalism is bad, but it's just not utilized. It's not turned to. It's the, the individual within the United States is naturally consistently elevating individuals mm-hmm presidents, for instance, you know, on my first day in office, I will do this. Democratic candidates honestly are worse about this than the Republicans. Elizabeth Warren, for example, first day in office, I'm going to, you know, essentially abolish the electoral college. How? You you don't have the authority to do that. Yeah. (laughs) Right. And and so we're almost as individuals consistently elevating people who keep pushing this sort of central authority push down. Mm -hmm. Why? There's a lot of good answers for that, but wh- why do we keep looking for that? So I think federalism is immensely important and is completely necessary in a system of order liberty when you're talking about 330 million people that are never going to agree on the central uh, policy. But I, I I think you have to almost take a step back and say, well, why do we innately not look
0: for federalist solutions first? And and it's funny, too, one of the examples I cite to folks on the left who really argue for strong federal control is how good would that framework have worked out in the early days of the Trump era when Trump tried to sign a a ban on travelers from majority Muslim nations? How would that have worked out? Also, the Republicans controlled the House and the Senate. Exactly. Exactly. And what stops presidents from getting all the things they want is the fact that states can sue them or they can just say, we're not going to do that. And then that's, that's all they can do. I want to get a little bit more into the structural stuff, but, but I also think we have to talk about the Republican Party here. And I, I told you a little bit about my past. I mean, when I look at the Republican Party, it's, it, to me, it almost is something akin to Darth Vader, where you know had a ton of potential, <laughs> and then there was some horrible accident, and now things have gone horribly wrong. What are your thoughts of the current state of the party, and especially of populist turn and and when did when do you think all this took place? did it happen with Trump, or was it kind of gradually increasing until it boiled over?
1: I, I think it's pretty evident whatever happened happened way before Trump yeah. went down the golden escalators yeah. say that I often point to the tea party that was really interesting to me that as much as that is, was a rebellion on the right against Democratic control, specifically President Obama, and as I'm sure you recall, the Democrats controlled the House and the Senate, mm-hmm. and sort of this wave of, uh-oh, what's what's coming? you know, you know the, the left has seized control of America, so we have these populist uprisings and formed of the Tea Party. In reality, I think that was also a dual rebellion against eight years of George W. Bush hmm. for a variety of reasons, because I think there was a sense in which you don't get a Donald Trump without what's perceived as a failure of the Bush administration, plus a failure of Romney, plus a failure of McCain. You finally get to this guy. That's not a failure, right? He worked a miracle. He beat Hillary Clinton, who most of the right believed was inevitable. Mm -hmm. She's going to be dictator of the United States at some point, right? She was the biggest boogeyman for the longest while. And he managed to defeat her. He was the winner. And I think that you can see that even in the early days of the tea party, it, it, I misread it. There were a couple of Tea Party events I went to. I wasn't particularly enamored with them, but I thought what it genuinely was was a concern for the direction of the country, specifically financially speaking, that we were in over our heads with the debt. We had a president consistently promising to spend more, more, more. And I think that was wrong. I think in reality what the Tea Party represented was Mm. anti-establishmentarianism. Because the early prototypes of the Tea Party, Ted Cruz, Sarah Palin, These were individuals that spoke to the heart of America and essentially said, look, you're real America, right? You're the true people of this country. And this elite mobocracy, in effect, has has stolen this American dream from us and has set us on this bad course. And I think Trump really tapped into that. It's kind of ironic that on paper, Ted Cruz would have been the perfect Tea Party candidate. And yet, you know, the old phrase, revolutions tend to eat their own children, Mm-hmm. I think even Cruz wasn't quite radical enough for that. You know, I mentioned the state of the Republican Party. It, I feel sometimes like I'm in this weird position. There's a, there's a video out there of an individual that during the Trump years kept complaining because he was saying he kept having to defend Trump because the arguments that were leveled against him were not true. And he kept trying to tell his friends, I don't like Trump. It's just you keep saying things that aren't true about him. Yep. And, and I sometimes feel the same about the Republican Party. I despise the direction it's gone. I think that there are certain odious grifters and charlatans and demagogues within the Republican Party that I, it, it wouldn't even be fair to say I'm embarrassed to be in the same party with them because I think it's it, It's not even embarrassment. It, in a saner time, they would be driven out and they would be almost a, a byword or a watchword of, oh, you don't want to be like old oh, such and so, or, remember what happened to them. But I also do somewhat sympathize with. The sentiments that led to all this, I think they were misdirected, and I think there were genuine demagogues that seized upon them. But I do think there was an aspect in which the hollowing out of the center of the country was real. There was an aspect in which the elites seemed to have misled us in a multitude of ways. Now that's fairly nuanced, and we can kind of debate what those are. But I think the Republican Party, by and large, under the old guard, failed to address those concerns in a serious, gradual, deliberate manner. And as a result, you end up with someone like Trump. And and this is a single issue, and I I don't necessarily have a well-thought-out, here's exactly what I would have done. One of the biggest concerns policy-wise in the Bush administration from the right was immigration. Mm. The base consistently pushed against the elites, not just Bush, but the elites on the right's desire for sort of a uh, comprehensive immigration policy. Now, maybe that was the right way to go, maybe it wasn't, but I think... You end up with this problem where the vast majority of the the base keeps saying, This is a problem, fix it. The people at top not only aren't fixing it, but they're moving in a different direction that we're you know, that the base is suspicious of. That can only go on so long before you end up with someone like a Donald Trump that is outright dog whistling racist things about mm-hmm. Mexicans and building a wall, and Mexico's gonna pay for it. And they're like, Well, finally, somebody has taken our problem serious, even if it's the dumbest solution possible. And and I think there was a whole series of that, the kind of this mismatch between
0: leadership and the rank and file. It's funny. So I I told you my departure from the Republican Party really happened during the Bush years. And I actually, I voted for McCain in the 2000 primary because I just didn't think Bush was fit. Mm -hmm. I didn't think he was a good president. I didn't think he was a good candidate. I didn't think he was compelling. I, I thought he was kind of ushered in by his dad. And I didn't think he was ready for the office, and I, and I, I will die on that hill today. I still think <laughs> I made the right vote in 2000. And I think what you're saying kind of tells me there are a lot of other people who were in the same boat. Well, incidentally, I, I, I want to throw in there that
1: you're correct, but what I'm saying is there's a lot of Americans who criticized Bush for the exact opposite reason you did. He didn't push into the cultural issues enough, mm. right? He,
0: he wasn't radical enough for their kids. Mm. So it kind of splits both ways. And and that's fair. I mean, look, it's America. And if that's what you care about, that's what you care about. And because we have only two parties, we're going to have some unhappy marriages at times with you know with yeah. people on opposite sides of an issue. One thing you said that, that I really want to dive into is the hollowing out of the country. Mm-hmm. People who... Have listened to this podcast for a while, will know I harp on this constantly. I don't believe we've had a real economy since the year 2000. I believe that's the last time we actually started seeing GDP that was not created via either monetary policy or (laughs) loose loans, really. Mm -hmm. But during the last, let's call it like now, maybe even 15 years or so, a lot of coastal urban enclaves have done exceptionally well. And the middle of the country has not fared so well. And I'm curious to get your take on what the hollowing out of the middle of the country means, the impact it has, and how it's kind of shaped people's thinking.
1: Yeah. That's a really
0: complex issue.
1: Because, first of all, we could have an entire conversation about that strictly through economic or material lens only. And it would be legitimate. And I think it would explain a lot of things. I I do think, though, there is a danger in leaning too far into that, because you can certainly look at eras in history in which people were significantly worse off and didn't have nearly Mm -hmm. as much animosity toward the system or the man. Mm -hmm. And so I think that while that is legitimate, it is not the full story. The book Mm -hmm. Alienated America, Timothy Carter wrote the the book Alienated America. And and incidentally, this is not just his argument. Lots of people made this argument. But he studied the Trump phenomenon in the 2016 election by going to multiple counties, that had similar socioeconomic backgrounds, but radical departures from who they supported in the Republican primaries, specifically Donald Trump or the non-Trump candidate, right? We can kind of, in in a lot of ways, lump the non-Trump candidates together. And his findings was that essentially in those communities that had a cohesive culture, I think there was one in particular that was a predominantly Dutch community, in which there was a very strong—this was when it dawned on him. He said he was sitting in this cafe, 11, 11.30 a.m. on a Sunday morning, almost to the noon hour, sitting here wondering, what is so different about this community? And all of a sudden, the entire cafe is flooded from people coming from the various churches, this Reformed mm. Dutch tradition, just churches all over the place. This entire community was very religiously oriented and centered. And, and I'm not trying to weigh this just to religion. But that that's what kind of tipped him off, and he began to study this and found that there was a direct link between the cultural cohesion of a community and whether or not he had voted for Trump. And that's not because Trump is a good or a bad person, but it was whether or not these communities resonated with the idea Trump best articulated his inauguration American carnage, right? Mm. Were these communities living in American carnage or not? They were just as poor and just as economically not well off as the other communities. The difference was they had a cultural cohesion. And so I, I try to be careful when we have these conversations. It is true, and we can measure very easily the economic impacts of the center of the country, but that it's the combination of that and the loss of culture. It's the loss mm-hmm. of the institutions that holds us together. Uh, what's also interesting is you can—studies also show that even though Trump is, is known for having a very rabid evangelical base, the reality is when evangelicals attend church on a weekly basis, they are— infinitely less likely to be supportive of Donald Trump when it's almost more a, a, a cultural recognition of I'm, I'm a Christian, but I only go to church you know once a month or maybe just on Easter and, and Christmas, they're more likely to vote for Donald Trump. Mm-hmm. And again, let me be very, very, very clear. I'm not saying that good Christians don't vote for Trump and bad Christians do. What I mean is there's a brokenness within these communities. There's a recognition of this isn't working. Yeah. Let's storm the cockpits. Let's go with this guy. And there's a lot more, again, I could say there, but that I want to be careful. If we somehow solve the economic argument, I don't think this problem is going away. And that's one of the reasons that I'm concerned about certain suggestions like UBI, for instance. I don't think yeah. just giving everyone a paycheck is going to help. You know, Myself, when COVID hit, one of the things that kept my sanity was my job. If they had just paid me, that would have been fine, but I was stuck at home. I couldn't go anywhere. Mm. What I really took pride in was I can still do my job, and you know, I, I felt valued in this in this community. They looked up to me. They looked to me for certain advice and and what and what it could bring. And I think when you lose that, it doesn't matter how much money you have. You've kind of lost the cohesion that
0: holds communities together. Mm-hmm. And you you bring up a good point there. I mean there are studies and I actually had a a guy on my show not too long ago who showed how as wealth disparity increases specifically as the average wage of the financial sector increases relative to the economy, political polarization rises with it. Hmm. And so there's some, there's some economic aspect of it. My, my, you know, my belief has always been that people generally have the same set of needs. They react sensibly to the environment that they're put in. And if you put them in a lousy environment, they're going to act out. And I think a lot of the ways we couch it is economic. You know, a lot of the ways we couch it is like how economically well off is this particular part of the country or this particular county or what have you. The second part, the social connection, is something that I don't think people have given enough credence to. It's not something people pay attention to as much. Mm-hmm. I'm curious, do you think that that is a government slash political problem or is that a social problem?
1: Yeah, uh, it's a little of each. I mean, the... One of the biggest challenges is the reason we talk about economics so much is is twofold, I think. Number one, you can measure it, right? We can have Mm -hmm. an argument about something in a way that is really, really hard to measure. Okay, what is the actual vitality and health of this community in a Mm non-economic sense? And and the second is, and I think we're fairly limited in this respect, but this is something the left and the right debate about all the time, we can impact it through policy, right? We we can certainly make economics worse. I I think we can all agree we can do things to make the situation worse. I think we're kind of limited in how we can help, but we can. I don't know what policies you enact to fully solve some of these social issues. And mm-hmm. and that is partially in the short time we've had to visit with each other. I think it would be fair to say I am far more attuned to sort of the social conservatism than you are. But mm. I also despair with a lot of what the right says about social issues because I I, I don't think it fixes the heart just to get the policy just right. Yeah, And and so I think those are two roadblocks, I guess. It's hard to measure, and it's hard to really know what to do from a policy perspective. I don't mean you can't do anything, but it ends up coming down to individual hearts and minds and working on the ground and and not Mm -hmm. sort of from a top-down approach of, well, if we enact this policy, that would fix things.
0: I think there's got to be a cultural shift. And I think one of the things that I've become keenly aware of is how much of American culture now and how much of American policy is based on raw consumerism, Mm -hmm. how much our economy is really structured specifically for that. And I think that's a very hollow goal. If you look during the Cold War, there were maybe three ways we differentiated ourselves from the Soviet Union. One was our liberties. You know, we have democracy, we have freedom of speech, freedom of assembly, all these great things the Soviets don't have number 2 we have religion you know soviet union has barred religion we have religion we're a religious people and the third was we have this great quality of life like mm-hmm. look at the look at an american house versus a, a house in the soviet union look at the difference look at the appliances right and after the fall of the soviet union we We had become more secular, and we really only had the founding mission of consumerism. We only had the founding mission of our material wealth, and today that's how we measure things. So, I mean, GDP is a measurement of what's being bought and sold, Mm -hmm. right? It's not a measurement of quality of health. It's not a measurement of quality of life, and I think it's a real blind spot for us. I'm gonna I'm gonna dive into something, an area where I think you and I might disagree a bit, and I want I want to get your take on this, which is. I am generally, on a federal level, pretty conservative. So on a federal level, I think restraint in spending. I think restraint in law. I think those are all good things. I think we should let the states do their job as much as possible, as much as in line with the Constitution. The flip side is I love my socialized Massachusetts. Absolutely love it. I love it. I have a a handicapped sister. My son has diabetes. I love the fact that my sister has a state-sponsored ride to and from work if she needs it. I love the fact that my son, as long as he lives in the state of Massachusetts, is never going to have to worry about getting health care and getting access to health care. And I do think that it works for Massachusetts, too. We've got an economy to support it. We have a lot of hospitals. We have a lot of advantages. A lot of other states don't. I'm curious how you feel about liberalism at the state level. Like, So you're sitting in Oklahoma, obviously much different state, much different setup. Is it a case where, hey, let's let Massachusetts be Massachusetts, let's let Oklahoma be Oklahoma, or there's some things about the structure of Massachusetts that kind of bother you? It's both,
1: and and I I think that is the great challenge of any statesman, is to try to understand. I, I am what I call a Burkean conservative, Edmund Burke. And yeah. and here I go again trying to quote somebody. I'm not going to get this exactly right. He says something to the effect of I must bear with infirmities until they fester into disease or yeah. something to that effect. Yeah. The general notion being there's a lot of things I don't agree with, but trying to fix them would make the problem worse. Hmm. And so part of the art of politics that the statesman, not the politician, but the statesman truly is trying to assess is at what point do you say, okay, that's going to get worse if we don't do something about it? To be fair, there are a lot of eccentric instances in other states that I don't think are problems. They're just weird, and I like that. Mm. I like the United States being weird. I want it to be weird. you know. I want Massachusetts to be very different than Oklahoma. There are other things that you do in your state that I would be like, I don't like that, but you know what? Trying to force you to not be that way is going to create a much bigger problem, so I'm going to allow Mm. that. And then there are instances, and this is where the true states might have to come in. I'll, I'll pick extreme examples, right? Slavery where it's like, mm. I don't like that, and it's wrong, and we need to impose our will on these individuals and usurp states' rights. Now, how far does that go? What, what about instances of discrimination? What is the role of a central authority to tell a state or a local government or an individual, you can't do this because that's discriminating against someone? That is a really, really hard question to answer because that's cutting at the fundamental notions of what it means to be an American in these founding principles. And so I I think it in certain ages can be a moving target, but I think that's the framework with it, with that I work in. I like the differences. I don't like some of them. And then there's others. I say that's wrong. It has to change.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I think that the biggest one today, and I think the issue that exemplifies that the most is probably abortion. And my, you have one group of people where this is a constitutional issue of bodily autonomy. Actually, in both cases, they're constitutional issues of bodily autonomy, and it's just a question of whose body. Mm-hmm. On the pro life side, there's the saying, well, there is this state sanctioned right to life enshrined in the Constitution, and that applies to the unborn child. And on the opposite side, you have people who say, I have personal sovereignty under the Constitution, and there is no reason why state authority should be able to impose its will. And there's, there's, in impasse. There's no way to square that circle. Yeah. Um, that out of the way. There's also a lot of nuance, and I think the overturning of Roe v. Wade is, has revealed that there's a lot of nuance in terms of people's views. I'm curious because this is a situation that's this is fluid. Right. This is going on right now. This is a changing situation. We have states debating the level at which they're either going to restrict or not restrict abortion. And in a situation where we have an issue that clashes so much with the Constitution, I guess I'll ask you, what's the conservative thing to do here? Is it for the federal government to like put put its hands up and step out and say, you know what, we've got to let this start at the local level and work its way out? Or is it a case where Somebody has to pull an Abraham Lincoln and come in and say, hey, this this is such a critical issue. We need to make this the law of the land.
1: Yeah, that, that's a tough question. And I, I I need to give a caveat right up front that I am, I've neither studied this deeply enough, nor am I probably the best spokesperson. Yeah. I am pro-life. I would prefer for abortions to not exist. Mm-hmm. Whether or not, let's just ignore the legal aspect, right? Yeah. And, and honestly, I think there are a lot of pro-choice people that would share the sentiment. Just yeah. be a wonderful world. There weren't abortions. Nobody even needed one. Yeah. Um, and, and I will say as a, as a mild criticism, although I do think the pro-life side is mostly good about this, but I think pro-life has to focus mostly on why are there abortions and how do we reach people to to see their way to not need an abortion mm. more than how do we just make this thing illegal? Because I, I don't think that solves anything of all we It's more than a policy issue, right? It's, yeah. it's conjunction with policy and that. But I, I like that you brought this up because you, you are correct. This is probably the number one issue that it pings that sort of cultural, constitutional, like, what's the resolution? Like, there there are two different sides to this that, honestly, I will readily admit, have legitimate arguments about what it fundamentally means to be an American. How do you resolve that? And this is just me personally. You could talk to someone else who's pro-life that may radically disagree. I don't think we're at the moment of a Lincoln ask a need for a Lincoln esque I'm going to impose this well on on the majority, partially because that would what Lincoln did. While I think it was right, necessitated the death of what 600,000 Americans. Mm-hmm. So it'd be kind of a peculiar pro life stance to say we're going to kill off whoever we need to, to to enforce this. Plus, I think the other issue is the nuance. This is not. I, I don't want to say that slavery was less. Nuanced than abortion, but but that might be fair. You know what? What is the when does life begin? That's something that we don't. That's not a political question. That's a philosophical. It's a religious question, and it's not one that's fully settled. And even if we could fully settle it, okay, then what does that mean that abortion under the Constitution cannot be legal, or just from a religious aspect? And and I I think what happened with the overturning of Roe v. Wade, and I know a lot of pro-choice people are going to radically disagree with this, and that's fine, but I I would argue that you can be pro-choice and still celebrate the demise of Roe v. Wade, because if I just take the religion out of it, and if I just take my position out of it, the Supreme Court, in my view, was never the appropriate place to have this conversation. It should have happened in Congress and in the local state governments. And I think that's what we're, the reason I say we don't need a Lincoln right now is because we haven't had the battle yet. That's Mm. what we're doing now. We're having this fight. And probably we're going to end up with some sort of a system that nobody's completely happy with. But it's like, okay, but I think this is right. I don't know that we'll ever get there, and it'll probably be long after you and I are dead. Yeah. But I say give the process a chance before you take up arms.
0: Yeah. I, I. No, and I'd agree with your take, too, that – and this is something that a lot of people are going to hate to hear – But I do feel in a lot of ways the pro-life movement as we know it was a reaction to the Supreme Court verdict in Roe v. Wade. It was a reaction to this abrupt change. And it's a really tough one because you've got a clear issue of moral conflict. And do you let the states figure it out? Or do you step in? And the consequences of letting the states figure it out are also a lot of injustices get to continue. Yes. You know, and so to your point, nobody is going to be happy with the overturning of Roe v. Wade on either side because you are going to have states like Massachusetts where they just go full tilt in the other direction and enshrine it in the constitution. And then you've got a state like Texas, for example, Mm -hmm. which has a fairly restrictive regime right now. And and so it's very difficult, I think, if you are on either side of that equation to look at that and say, the right thing to do is for the federal government to do nothing Mm -hmm. because there's automatically this injustice that really strikes at the core of who you are that's allowed to continue. Yeah. And, and
1: it's interesting when we say it that way because something I talk about often is I think there's also a fundamental difference between the way a conservative or a progressive approaches a lot of policies. And, and I don't mean this as a criticism, even though I, I don't think it's the appropriate way to approach it. A progressive is so focused on justice that at times I think they sacrifice trade offs. Mm that they cannot abide the notion that injustice is taking place, and therefore we need this to step in and, and take control. That might be the right answer, but we need to pursue the right answer with clear eyes that there are going to be consequences, maybe unanticipated or unforeseen yeah. consequences. And that is, needs to be measured, because those could also be injustices. So I, I think it sort of has a natural reticence toward just jumping in there and changing something that's wrong. Yeah. Maybe we can all agree it's wrong, But trying to fix it could make things more wrong.
0: Mm. Do you know, it's funny. I want to say something to anyone who might be listening who's on the left of things. And I've given enough criticism of the right where I feel I'm fair in in leveling this. So get ready, folks. I'd like to talk a little bit about the current environment and the way the right very often dismissively talks about the left and the way you often hear the term snowflake or woke or whatever. And you're branded Mm -hmm. with this label. And there's just no way to escape that label. And the thing I want folks on the left to understand is that the right has been dealing with that for decades, for decades. It's like, oh, you're Republican. You must be racist. Oh, you're pro-life. You must hate women. And and again, I'm not a Republican. I have veered away from what I'd consider a pro-life stance. But that out of the way, that's going to harden people. And, and also, it's not going to win friends and influence people. You know, you're not going to get anything done if that's your attitude. And, and I can tell you, as someone who was raised conservative in the state of Massachusetts, that's the way it was, rightly or mm. wrongly. You know, people may, people may say, well, you deserved it. Fine. You can say that. But it didn't do much to move me over to the other side. And, and I do yeah. think that I do think one of the problems that we face is that absolutism. Is that idea that if you were not 100% full bore for this policy, then you must be against me, and I'm not going to take 75% of what I want in order to make you happy?
1: So, so let me offer a um, I don't know if it's I don't know if it'd be right to say a pushback on the pushback, but just just a f- food for thought here because pushback on the pushback. Let's go, yeah. I'm of two minds on this. First of all, I, I completely agree with what you just said, and it it stokes hatred and bitterness and division. Yeah. I think sometimes there's a tendency to on, on the right to let voters and elected officials off the hook for this, right? Mm. Of course, they voted for Donald Trump. People have been calling him names for years. What kind of cowards are we that someone pokes fun at us and we have to behave in a way that we're acknowledged, oh, this might destroy the republic, but someone hurt my feelings, right?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> yeah. And, and, and there's some of that going on too. So I, I think in effect what sometimes is going on here when we talk about the center of the country, right? Where most of these people aren't being called names by their friends and neighbors. They might not have even met a liberal, right? They're more concentrated in other parts of the country. I think in reality, what we're talking about is in those cases. And and again, let me emphasize what you said is real and a problem and does stoke division. But I think for those individuals, what they're concerned about is not that I live in a deep blue area and I feel like I'm a gladiator in a Roman Colosseum. Yeah. Kind of thing. But the elites talk to me that way. The people that hold mm. power, the media, the, the people in universities, the people who have on the coasts who have made it in life. And here I am in this poor struggling community and they look down on me and they don't see the good that's in me because they're talking to me like this. The reason I bring that up is because that is really only a problem. Again, I'm kind of repeating myself, when you have broken communities, mm. yeah, when when you have a cohesive community, it might still be an issue, but you're not going to go vote for a candidate that could destroy the republic on the fact that someone hurt your feelings. Yeah. You might
0: do it if you think the republic's lost anyways. Hmm. That's interesting. That's interesting. Let me let me dive into my socialist side then for a little okay. bit. <laughs> Cause I do because I do think there's there's a bunch of things we can we can touch on here. And I I, I think disconnection, isolation is a problem in and of itself that's a social problem. And that's something that's going to have obvious effects on somebody's mental state. And I think we could go back to when times were better and we saw signs of this going awry. Like if you look, I mean, the first major school shooting in Columbine was, what was it? 97, 98. I
1: mean, it sounds right. I don't remember.
0: Yeah. I, yeah. It was around then, right? Like things were pretty good. The economy was good. Things were humming. We hadn't had any major crises. The Berlin Wall had fallen. It, it, was, it was really a, a, a small, brief, golden era in America that, that didn't last too long. But that was very much, I think, a, a crime of isolation in a way. You know, these kids were bullied, and I think you, you saw that recurring. And those things are cultural On the social side, I do think there's a lot we do in this country to put undue stress and unneeded stress on people. So a couple of examples I think of here. There's a lot of data that says a higher level of education will ultimately result in higher earnings, right? Mm -hmm. Higher level of education will ultimately result in more freedom, more ability to do what you want with your life, whether that's monetary or not, right? There's a lot of things that underpin that. There's nutrition there's your home environment, and there are some things that are out of people's control. Mm -hmm. And so I wonder how you feel about certain programs that relieve that desperation. So things like, for example, some easy wins or free childcare, nutritional assistance, things like that are very, very helpful when you're talking about kids and when you're talking about giving them the ability to ultimately to grow into the best person they can be. Where do you, how do you feel about those programs? Do they have a place in government? If so, where is this federal? Is it state? Is it a mix? Like, what are your thoughts?
1: Oh, that's a great question. I don't know if I have any concrete thoughts, but l- l- let me offer some yeah. peripheral thoughts and maybe we can get there. But then the neocons of the 1960s say, and these were individuals, you know, the famous phrase Irving Crystal had was a neocon was a conservative mugged by reality. In other words, yeah. they were liberals. They were FDR Democrats. And then Mm. when it gets to the great society, they begin to measure the program and say, this isn't working. What's interesting, though, is unlike, say, the National Review crowd, they never rebelled against FDR. They never said, we need to dismantle the entire New Deal. And oftentimes what a neoconservative would argue is that if a society reaches a certain level of affluence, it is morally obligated to create some sort of a social safety net to take care of the weak, the poor, the disadvantaged. The tension in my mind is that I slightly agree with that. But I also think we need to accept that anytime we create a social safety net, there is going to be mismanagement and waste mm. and fraud and a continuing cycle of perpetual poverty. However, I think it's probably utopic to say we could ever fully dismantle it and that people would be fine with that and that somehow we'd all pull together in cohesive communities that take care of each other.
0: Mm.
1: I, I think we have to strike a balance. And, and I say that not because I like, I like that the social safety net is there to help people. I would prefer it were not there and that we found a way to reorient society in which the individuals help people. Because I think that's not only it is preferable for a number of reasons. It does the person helping good. It does the person being helped good. And I think it gives the greatest possibility of alleviating that poverty. But that's utopia. I don't think we're ever going to truly get there. So then there's this question. Well, how much poverty (laughs) do we put up with? How much do we relieve? How much could we even relieve even if we had all the money in the world? You know, there's, yeah. As a friend of mine pointed out once, part of the problem with homelessness is some of those people don't want to live in a home because that's not a safe place. There is mm-hmm. no amount of money that's going to put that person in a home. That is a problem that no government program is probably ever going to help. It's going to take, if that's ever going to be believed, and maybe it can't in this world, some human is going to have to invest in that person. And so I, I, I'm not trying to waffle on my answer. I guess I'm saying that in a perfect world, I'd prefer no social safety net. We don't have a perfect world. So what do we do about that?
0: No, I agree with you there. I agree with you there. And I think there are always going, regardless of what problem you solve, there's always going to be another problem at the fringe, I think, that pops up. And so the question is, what's the best mechanism to deliver that? And I don't have a good answer. You know, there's, a, there's actually, there is another topic I wanted to shift to, though. This is going to sound like a weird question. I'm going to ask it, and then I'm going to qualify it, which okay. is... Does true conservatism have any place in the federal government? And, and I'll, I'm going to qualify it with this. I believe part of the reason the Republican Party has deviated from what we'd consider true conservatism is because the allure of concentrating power is too strong. Mm-hmm. And it is very, very difficult for anyone in power to resist the temptation to veer off the path. And fiscal conservatism is the easiest thing to throw overboard because right now we have a market that has a seemingly bottomless appetite for US debt. Mm -hmm. We have a whole American population who loves government spending, whether they want to admit it or not. We love nice highways. We love a big military. We love all the trappings of a federal government, even if we rail against it. And we have a populace that hates taxes. So the allure of me just dipping into that bottomless piggy bank and piling on more debt in order to give my constituents the programs they want at rock bottom prices is just way too strong. And I almost feel like the truest form of conservatism would want not just like a set of policies in government, but would want federal restraint, mm-hmm. would want to dial back the reach of the federal government. And it's a very difficult thing to accomplish politically. It really has to come from the grassroots. I, I filibustered long enough on this. I, I want to hear your I hear <laughs> comment. No, it's, it's a great question.
1: The, the last presidential candidate to win a nomination, that is, who ran mm-hmm. on that kind of conservative message was Barry Goldwater. And I don't Mm. think it was the most, but it was one of the most lopsided defeats in American history. Now, granted, you can say he was also running against the ghost of JFK because LBJ was, you know, took the mantle from there. But he was very clear about that. Look, he put me in office. I'm going to repeal laws. I'm not going to create new ones. I'm not going to see if something's needed. I'm going to ask first, is it constitutional? My aim is to expand liberty because I think that's what's in the best interest of my constituents. He was speaking as a senator, of course, at the time. Yeah. You get to Ronald Reagan, who in a lot of ways embraced, maybe this was back that neoconservatism embraced the FDR model, didn't try to dismantle it. And you're absolutely right. Look, Donald Trump, for all his faults in the 2016 debate, one of the one of the good things he did was he at least said the quiet part out loud. I am not <laughs> going to abolish Social Security, Medicare, and Medicaid. I'm just yeah. not going to do it. Now, he also said that he would find all the fraud and waste and that that would somehow balance the programs, which is insane, (laughs) but, Hmm. but he at least, he at least said what Republicans have operating been operating on this entire time. Incidentally, it doesn't mean I think we should abolish it. I just think we need to be realistic. If we're going to keep it, let's raise everybody's taxes, which case I think we'll very quickly abolish it. Uh, yeah, but where I'm going with that is, yeah, this is not a popular idea. I think there are two things going on. However, Milton Friedman, now I just mentioned Ronald Reagan kind of accepted FDR, but he was critical of LBJ in that project. Milton Friedman, the economist, said of Ronald Reagan that he was the only president in his lifetime that did not say what Americans wanted to hear, but rather Americans came around to wanting to hear what he had been saying for decades. What he meant by that was Mm -hmm. the Reagan that we elected in the 1980s was the same Reagan who lost Gerald Ford prior was the same Reagan who gave a stump speech for Barry Goldwater, and Goldwater went down in flames. Reagan didn't change. It was that the United States, you know, with double-digit inflation, with economic stagflation, uh, with with kind of our loss of prestige on a world stage, Americans came around to saying, I think that guy might have something. Now, Reagan was no Barry Goldwater, right? He wasn't saying, you put me in charge, I'm going to just abolish all these departments and i honestly wonder if my generation and younger might change this because at some point you run out of money right and and when we get to the when we get to the parts where i i think i saw this on your twitter feed that you look at all the parts of the budget you would have to the the military entitlement spending yes. that you would have to if you don't touch them you're going to have to cut 70% of everything else that's insane yes. And so I often say that I used to, when I I was much younger, I used to be all about tax cuts. And then later I became all about spending cuts. Now I think I'm neither of those two things. I think the real root of the issue is a fundamental question of what does government do? What should it do? Mm. And whatever we think it should do, let's fund that. I have no problem spending as much money as we need to spend if that's what government needs to do. But I think that's where we need to start our question is, what is the purpose and role of government?
0: Mm Hmm. Heavy stuff. Heavy stuff. I think it's 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 interesting you say that too because I do think that getting back to something you said earlier on, a lot of it's about respect for the system, Mm -hmm. and the one of the frustrating things about American democracy is that in order to make something the law of the land, you need such a high threshold of support. Yeah, you need to get two bodies of Congress one of which is constantly running for reelection and you need a president and they- And the other one of which, everybody's running for president. Yeah, everybody's running for president 24 seven. Yeah, election season never, presidential election season never ends. And then of course you have a Supreme Court which can tilt one way or the other. And over the course of time, uh, that that makes it very difficult to enact laws. And if you enact it, it makes it very difficult to uphold it. Mm -hmm. And, And I do think that, what's going on with the polarized nature of our political dialogue today is that we're throwing the baby out with the bathwater. I think both parties in their own respect are obstructionist in the sense that they mm. don't want the other side's agenda to get through. And that's kind of their mission. And because of that, they blame the institutions. Well, the Supreme Court needs term limits or the filibuster needs to be eliminated or we need to abolish the electoral college. And they never actually look at the problem as a dialogue problem Mm -hmm. is the fact that there's no honest debate, there's no compromise. And so everybody gets 0% of what they want rather than getting 50% or or what have you. What are your, what are your thoughts there? Yeah, I I have mixed thoughts there because
1: I, I'm a lot of these things. I'm I'm of two minds. I suppose. I do agree with the, with the problem as you've presented it. However, I also think that there are fundamentally Diametrically opposed to views between what direction we want government to go, and so it is truthful to say, well, we're not going to actually reach consensus with some of these issues. We yeah. can't. It doesn't matter how nice we are to each other. We don't want to go in the same direction. I think, first of all, maybe it's a return to our federalism argument. To me, it's almost a no-brainer. Well, the first solution is stop doing so much in Washington D.C. Mm-hmm. Why are they involved in this anyways? Yeah, <laughs> we want to do these crazy things. Let's work it out in the states but second to that i do agree with the poisonous atmosphere that there are we live in an unusually razor thin margin era and i don't mean that there are e- population terms i know that there was far more americans that identify as blue than red but just the way the political map works what isn't this the most razor thin house we've seen in yeah. our lifetime or something yeah. like that Yep. And, and if you look at the number of ways since Ronald Reagan, honestly, that it switched back, he was, I think, the last landslide president. Or no, that's not, that's not fair. George H.W. Bush was the last landslide president. Mm-hmm. We've gone back and forth, and I believe it was George W. Bush was the only one that won a plurality uh, or won the popular vote ever mm-hmm. since then. So we've, we've yeah. had this, like, a lot of these problems would be solved if one party massively dominated the other. That being said, that's not always a good thing. You know, there was a, as as it's often pointed to, there was a lot of consensus in the pre-civil rights era to just maintain the Jim Crow system. Mm. That's not a good thing. It was better when we ended up having big fights about that. Uh, So super majorities are not always good, but I think that's part of the problem we're experiencing is no one's really in charge. And what's weird, I've noticed this a lot. If you talk to people that are heavily partisan Republican or Democrats, they're convinced the other side's the one that's winning. And so we all feel like losers. Yeah, it, it's it's strange how often it's, we're losing this. The other, And the other side is always depicted as monolithic and very uniform. Yeah. They know what they're doing. They're very conniving. And it's like, no, they're about as confused
0: and bickering among them themselves as we are. Yes, that's interesting. That is really interesting. Do you think the takeaway here is, and this kind of gets back to something I I talked about earlier where, If you really are to ascribe to a federalist model, then in many cases, you're going to have your version of injustice playing out in some other state, and you can't do anything about it. Sure. Do you think part of the answer is here that the American system is set up in such a way that in order for the federal government to ultimately reach into everybody's lives. Things have to reach such a critical situation. Things have to reach a crisis that it just makes obvious sense to everybody. And, and I think a case could be made for the Civil War. But, you know, All the states involved in the, what was the United States of America agreed that was a bad thing, you know, because the Confederates had left. I think during the Great Depression, there was obviously this huge expansion of the federal government because of the economic state and then, of course, the war effort. And it seems like we're headed into a similar era of turbulence. And maybe in some ways we have to like just sit back and wait for the tidal wave to hit. And then at that point, it becomes plainly obvious what it is to do.
1: I, I think that's fair. I think we're we're clearly living through party realignments, mm-hmm. cultural re- realignments. I think we're it's a much, much more dangerous world to be in. So I don't celebrate this, but I think we're seeing the end of the post-World War II global order. Mm. We haven't really been talking about outside the United States, but both internal, external, there's a lot of changes. And, and you, you hit upon that in a way that I often feel, which is that there's a lot of this that I don't honestly know the answers as to how this resolves, how it, how it ends, how it gets better. I I have pieces of the answers, I feel like, and I'm I'm trying to put those forward, but I feel like this is one of those eras that, you know, when we're old and great, looking back on, it's going to look a lot clearer than now. Yeah. However, the good news is that there are fundamental truths about human nature from both a religious and, and conservative philosophical perspective that don't change, that whatever era you live in, to behave with gratitude about the good things, to behave with humility about your ability to actually change things for the better and to focus on what is yours and not try to get into somebody else's business. I I think leaning into those civic, small r Republican virtues the founders always talked about, if if we are ever going to get out of this mess, I think that's going to have to be a huge component. Mm. And even if you don't know how to get from A to B and, you know, how, how to end this thing, how to make it better, you can see that, okay, well, I can play my little role here. The phrase you've all been often uses, which as I love this, is that it is appropriate to look at the institution you're in and to ask the question, given my role, given where I am, how ought I to behave? Not how do I turn this institution to a platform for me to show the world how wonderful I am, but how do I subject myself to the roles and the institutions and the conventions of this particular organization? That could be your church, your family. Your country, mm. and if we would, I think, reflectively behave with those civic virtues, I think answers will become clearer.
0: Mm. Well, Josh, I've I sent you a whole bunch of questions before this. I think I've asked two of them, <laughs> and uh, you've been very patient with me, peppering you with other questions. So I appreciate it.
1: Well, it's been a pleasure.
0: I hope you enjoyed this episode, and if you did, please consider leaving it a review. I've also included a link to Josh's podcast and blog in the show notes. Now, a couple of comments in this conversation that really struck me. The first is how Trump was really a byproduct of Republican elites ignoring calls from their rank and file on particular issues. Now, I was also surprised when Josh mentioned that there were Republicans to the far right of me who were also turned off by George W. Bush more for not going further to the right than myself, who was mad that he went further to the right than I wanted him to. And both of these reinforce my belief that the two-party system really doesn't offer enough political diversity for voters to feel their views are represented or to truly represent the American people. And as a result... A lot of issues fester to the point where demagogues begin to sound appealing. And Josh cited immigration as an example, and I've often brought up trade policies that disadvantage the Rust Belt in prior episodes. Now, there's another thing Josh said that I hadn't thought about, and that's the role social cohesion plays in people's well-being and keeping societies intact. And I'm still not sure there's a policy decision that can fix that. I mean, one could argue a more equitable distribution of wealth could give people more time with their families as opposed to spending it working, or that moving our infrastructure from one that favors cars to one that favors more densely populated communities could help, but these are all really just guesses. And isolation and disconnection have been shown to be a precursor to radicalization, and it's possible this is having a larger impact on polarization in this country. Uh, it's one I haven't dived into yet, but it's something I'm going to have to focus on down the road. As always, music courtesy of Quellertac, YDHTY's director of continuous improvement, is the admirable Admiral Adam Yaffe. YDHTY is produced in loving memory of the Big Geno, Jason Putney. Until the next, this is Dan Sally. Oh, bye-bye.